Today is one of the most profound and important days in the passion of our good Savior, and it's also one of the most important and profound days in the life of the Church. Holy Thursday has been called the eventful day because so many events transpired on this day, and we can find the entirety of the day's events encapsulated in one statement spoken by our Lord. It's an often overlooked but a deeply moving statement. And in a few words, we can also see how all of the day's events still relate to us even 2,000 years later. As it is written in the Gospel of St. John, Christ says the following, And for their sakes, referring to his disciples, I have sanctified myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Our Lord says these words just before entering the Garden of Gethsemane late on Thursday evening, where he'll be betrayed by Judas, taken prisoner, and ultimately be sentenced to death by crucifixion. It's found in a larger text that is referred to as the High Priestly Prayer, or the Farewell Prayer, and in a larger section of the Gospel of St. John, which is referred to as the Golden Chapters in the Golden Book. It's so called because of the great depth and beauty found in these chapters. In it, our Lord prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for all of us as well. As such, it behooves us to take a deeper look into these very sacred words of our Lord, as this is the only time where we get in an intimate look into the interior prayer life of our Lord, where the Son speaks directly to the Father at length. So let me read it one more time. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So today we'll attempt to address three questions. The first is, what does it mean to be sanctified? The second is, how does this idea of sanctification relate to the events of Holy Thursday? And finally, how do these events, events, or how does this relate to me today? So first, to sanctify or to make holy literally means to set something apart as being different. The importance of sanctification or holiness in the Christian life cannot be overstated. It spans the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the first epistle of St. Peter, he quotes the book of Leviticus, where God commands his people to be holy and instructs them unambiguously writing the following, Be holy because I am holy. St. Peter is encouraging the early church to imitate God's holiness in all that they do, not not just as an abstract concept, but as a practical way of life. Likewise, St. Paul also writes the following in the letter of the Hebrews, Pursue holiness, for for without which no one will see God. But this raises a question. How can Christ, the all-holy Son, how can he be sanctified? Is the all-holy in need of sanctification? Can the all-holy be made more holy? As we know, Christ is fully God and fully man. As God, he is eternally holy. And as man, he is, and, and, and he is fully human in everything but sin. Therefore, Christ does not need to be made uh, sanctified or made holy in the sense of being cleansed of sin or impurity. But Christ's sanctification can be understood in a different sense the act of setting himself apart for a specific purpose, for a mission, the mission of man's redemption. 
Additionally, Christ, although he himself does not need to be made holy, he is the model of our sanctification. So by following his example and by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we can, beca- we can become more holy like Christ. So now we arrive at our next question. How did you sanctify yourself for me, O Lord, so that in knowing this, I might also be able to sanctify myself? And this is in fact what Christ desires for us, as he says that they also, referring to us, may be sanctified. And more specifically, he tells us by what way, or more specifically, he tells us by who the way is. He says, by the truth, and he is the truth. As he says, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our Lord God and Savior is the example of our sanctification. He is the roadmap. And by focusing on three events that immediately precede this statement on Holy Thursday and one that follows it, we can see the extent to which Christ sanctified himself for us and it is incumbent on us to imitate this example. So the first is the institution of the Holy Eucharist at the Last Supper. Our Lord sanctified himself. He sets himself apart for this purpose of offering us his precious body and his blood. He he offered it as the new covenant. This is where the term Covenant Thursday comes from. In the Old Testament, the covenants were formed between man and God by the blood of animals. But in the New Testament, the covenant is formed by the blood of our good Savior. And this was God's plan from the very beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 3, we recall that after the fall, man was restricted from eating from the tree of life. Or in other words, man was restricted from eternal life. However, our Lord reversed this restriction in the Last Supper with two simple words. Take, eat. But this time, the fruit that hangs on the tree, but this time the fruit doesn't hang on the tree, but instead... That which saves hangs on the wood of the cross. Our Lord is inviting us to come and eat that which gives eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So the wood of the cross has replaced the tree of life and Christ's body has replaced the fruit of the tree. So as Christ sanctified himself by instituting the Holy Eucharist, we too must also sanctify ourselves, not only in partaking of the Holy Eucharist, but by knowing and believing in its life-giving power. Friends, this is the importance of the Eucharist to us. It is life. Foreshadowing of the Holy Eucharist is also found in the very beginning of our Lord's ministry. During the first miracle at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, If you recall, there's a somewhat unusual exchange of words between our Lord and St. Mary. It reads as follows. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. What did Christ mean? My hour has not yet come. This is most commonly understood as the hour of his ministry had not yet come. 
But typically in Scripture, when our Lord refers to His hour, He's referring to the hour of His death. And clearly, St. Mary does not interpret this refusal as, uh, does not interpret this as a refusal because she immediately turns to the servants and instructs them to do as she says, to do as he says. So there must be a deeper meaning. Christ's answer to his mother is a foreshadowing that the la- of, of the Last Supper and of his death on the cross. See, it was the role of the bridegroom to provide the wine at the wedding banquet. And although St. Mary is clearly referring to the banquet at hand, our Lord is referring to his wedding banquet. That is when he would ultimately assume his role as the bridegroom to the church and offer his wine, that is his blood, at the Last Supper table and on the cross. Thus, when St. Mary is asking her son to assume the role of the bridegroom, she is in a way asking him at This is why he answers, my hour has not yet come. Because it was not yet his time to offer his his blood uh, to the church. And this archetype of bridegroom and and bride is the most common one that is used in Scripture to describe the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament and also to describe Christ and the church in the New Testament. It's further reinforced even on the cross. When Christ says the following, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken, as it is found in the original language of the text, is only used one other place in Scripture in this exact same form, and it's in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall forsake his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So then, if the Last Supper is Christ's wedding banquet with the church, then his death on the cross is his marriage to the church. So we see clearly that Christ set himself apart for this purpose, for the purpose of instituting the Holy Eucharist well before the Last Supper. We see foreshadowing of it from the very beginning of creation and also from the very beginning of our Lord's ministry. And as Christ sanctified himself by offering us his holy body and blood, so too must we sanctify ourselves by receiving it regularly during the Holy Communion. I heard in a sermon once, it said so beautifully, Our God is so humble that he is willing to hide himself in a morsel of bread and a sip of wine. And he makes it so easy for us. All we have to do is take, eat. Just two words. Next, our Lord sanctifies himself by performing a great act of humility. Imagine the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the God of gods on his knees, washing the feet of his followers, of his children, of his creation. But washing of the feet was more than just an act of humility. What Christ did was a forbidden act. It says in the book of Leviticus, And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. See, it was the role of the Gentile slave to wash the feet, and not even a Jewish servant was permitted to do it. So then not only was it not permitted for Christ to wash the disciples' feet, but it wouldn't even have been permitted for the disciples to wash Christ's feet. Again, Christ is teaching us that the spirit of the law 
is more important than the letter of the law. And he says to his disciples who are in shock, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done. And when confronted with this great act of humility, this incomprehensible act, we want to answer as St. Peter did. Lord, you shall never wash my feet. But our Lord responds firmly, If I do not wash, you have no share with me. God forbid we should ever hear such harsh words from our Savior. But it makes us ask, why, Lord? Why such a harsh rebuke to St. Peter? And our Lord responds and says the following, Sorry, and St. Peter, struck by the response, by our Lord's harsh rebuke, says the following, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Basically, he says, wash every part of me that is exposed. But then our Lord responds and corrects St. Peter and says the following, the one who has bathed does not need to be washed except for his feet. So what does he mean here? Our Lord is saying that the one who has bathed He is referring to the sacrament of baptism. And when our Lord says, except for his feet, he is instituting the sacrament of confession. Our Lord is saying, come to me. Let me wash that part of you that is in need of regular washing. Let me wash away your sins. Let's linger on this part for a little bit. Let's ask ourselves today, what is that part in me that is in need of regular washing. We mustn't forget those frightful words spoken by our Lord to St. Peter. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Unless we call out to be washed through repentance and confession, we have no part with him. It's a frightening thought. Friends, this is the importance of repentance and confession in our lives. We must allow the Lord to wash our feet in this way and we must allow him to do it regularly. I urge us all today in each of our hearts to call out to the Lord and to ask him, Lord, wash away my insecurity. Wash away my envy. Wash away my jealousy. Wash away my anger, my complacency, my impatience, my greed, my pride. Whatever it is, O Lord, please wash it away. He wants our repentance because he loves us. He wants to give us rest. Come to me, all you who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says the Lord. He wants us to be in loving union with him. Abide in me and I in you. The word abide is used 11 times in the golden chapters. And friends, he will never reject us. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. In fact, we read in one of the prophecies today, I have no pleasure in the death of a sinner, but that the sinner may return and live. And we also read in another prophecy earlier in the week, he delights in mercy. All God wants is our broken hearts. As King David the psalmist wrote, for you do not desire the death of a sinner, 
but that should, for you do not desire sacrifice, sacrifice or else I would have given it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. The psalmist also beautifully writes, You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. We all fall short. We are all sinners. But that's not the question. The question is this. Am I a sinner living a sinful life or am I a sinner living a repentant life? Thus, as Christ set himself apart for this purpose of washing his disciples' feet and instituting the sacrament of confession, so too must we sanctify ourselves by regularly partaking in it. Next, after, wa- after washing the feet, our Lord rises and he begins to teach. This is where we receive the second of only two documented homilies by our Lord. The first is the Sermon on the Mount, where our Lord transitions between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the second homily is this one, found in the Golden Chapters. This is where Christ teaches us the depths of the New Testament. In it is where we find what's referred to as the New Commandment. And this is why our church refers to Holy Thursday also as Maundy Thursday. Mandi is from the Latin word mandentum, meaning commandment. As Christ said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's kind of a tongue twister. Three times our Lord says, love one another. Our Lord is really trying to emphasize how crucial it is that we love each other. This is also reminiscent of when Christ asks St. Peter three times, do you love me? And each time after St. Peter responds, yes, our Lord instructs him, feed my sheep. The message here is this, if you love me, love one another, feed my sheep. Christ is tying together the love of God with the love of one another. We can no longer say, I love God, if we don't have love for one another. And the evidence of our love for God is our love for one another. This is also echoed in the, epistle, the first epistle of St. John. This commandment we have from him. Those who claim to love God ought to love his brother and sister also. And maybe in this light, the seemingly difficult verse found in the epistle of St. James begins to make a little more sense. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of it all. At first, what seems like a harsh rebuke is actually a call to love. It's not that we must be perfect, but it's that everything we do must be laced in love. Love is the secret ingredient. If we stumble in one point, that one point being love, then whatever we do is to no avail. So for example, if we give alms, but we give it begrudgingly, it's to to no avail. If we serve, but we don't do it with love, it's a useless service. If we visit the sick, if we come to church, even if we offer our repentance, but we don't do it with love, then what we've done is of no use. 
But this idea of loving God and loving our neighbor is not new. The Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and the Golden Rule in the New Testament all have tenets of loving God and loving each other. So then the question becomes, well, what is the new part of the New Commandment? As I have loved you, that's the new part. That's the part that Christ came to give us. He didn't only tell us what to do, but he first came and showed us how to do it. Also found in the golden chapters, Christ says the following. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, no, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do as I command you. The story of salvation is truly a love story. His Holiness Pope Shenouda once beautifully preached that the entirety of the Bible can be summarized in three simple points. The first point is God loves you very much. The second point is because he loves you, he incarnated for you. And the final point is he wants you to love him and each other back. It's that simple. So, there, so therefore, as Christ sanctified himself, not only by preaching that we should love one another, but by becoming perfect love for us, so too must we sanctify ourselves by doing as he instructed us to do so clearly, by loving one another as he first loved us. And finally, our Lord enters into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the climax of the night. But the degree of his agony is often understated. As St. Luke writes, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This small detail highlights how extreme Christ's anguish was. And it is fitting that Gethsemane in Hebrew means the oil press, because it is here that Christ the olive branch was pressed. The Church Fathers also contemplate that the word Kyrieleison, Lord have mercy, comes from the root word Eleos, which is the same word for olive oil. And as the oil pressed Gethsemane pressed our Lord Jesus Christ, the olive branch, out of him flowed the oil of mercy. So then this begs the question, was the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane a prelude to the torture that would occur the next day on Great Friday? Or was there something more? And when Christ asked for the cup to be removed, did the cup refer to the torture that would follow on Great Friday? Or was there something more? And how do we reconcile Christ's agony with the fact that so many of the martyrs of our church also endured great tortures, but did so with peace and tranquility? We even have stories of saints in our church who ran to the sword, longing for their crowd. Their ans the answer is there must be something. There, there must be something more than just the admittedly terrible, horrendous, brutal torture that our good Savior endured on Great Friday. There must be something more. There must be something unique to Christ. Simply put, it's this. He became 
sin personified. As St. Paul wrote, him who knew no sin became sin. Our Lord allowed himself to carry every single sin that has ever occurred and that every single sin that would ever occur in that single act so that he could conquer all of it for us. The one who is without any sin, without any blemish, took onto himself every despicable, deplorable act of humankind. Think of the worst things you've ever heard, things that make your skin crawl. Christ took those on for us. But not just every single terrible act or sin that ever happened, but he also took on every single negative human emotion. He took on fear, loneliness, betrayal, mockery, hatred. He took all of it for us in order to conquer it for us. As St. Gregory of Nazianzus wrote, that which he has not taken, he has not saved. In other words, the only way that we can be saved from it, whatever that it is, is if he took it for us on the cross. So then going back to the original question, Christ's agony is related to the cup of sin that he drank on Holy Thursday. The torture that Christ endured for us on Good Friday is almost incomprehensible. But that cup that he drank on Holy Thursday is incomprehensible. Now we can understand how the martyrs who followed our Lord could endure their tortures in peace and tranquility. It's because Christ had already conquered it for them. Fear, dread, anguish, death, he already defeated it for them. He already drank the cup and he already defeated it for them on the cross. Maybe this is what Christ meant when he said in the golden chapters, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these, he will do. As Saint Athanasius said, he took what is ours and gave us what is his. Yes, he took our humanity and gave us a taste of his divinity. He took, he became man so that we could become gods. But thinking of it another way, he took our anguish and gave us his peace. He took our fear and gave us his courage. He took our grief and gave us his joy. He took our death and gave us his life. So we've already seen that Holy Thursday began with Christ offering his body and blood on the Eucharist table. Then it continued with the master assuming the forbidden role of a slave and washing the feet of his followers. We then see the agony of our Lord in the Garden of the Gethsemane. And we haven't even gotten to our Lord being betrayed by a kiss from one of his, believe, from one of his followers. It's one he called a friend. Our Lord being betrayed three times by arguably one of his greatest followers. And the six false trials held by the Jews and the Romans in the cloak of the night. And we don't have time to discuss these events, but if you would allow me to share one more contemplation on Holy Thursday. It starts with a prophecy and it is followed by a question. When Christ was asked for a sign, he responded that no sign would be given except for the sign of Jonah. And our Lord prophesies the following. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And now here's the question. But if our Lord died on Friday and rose on Sunday, wouldn't that mean that he rose after two, after two, after two nights, not three nights, right? Saturday and then Sunday? Some might answer and say that our Lord's death on the cross was before sunset on Friday, approximately at the, at the ninth hour, approximately 3 p.m. And that would give us the, the, the three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But if we look back at the prophecy, it says three nights in the belly of the whale. And it says the Son of Man will be three nights in the heart of the earth. The key here is three nights, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. Thus, Christ is indicating that the sacrifice was offered on Thursday night. Tonight is when he drank the cup of sin for our sake. But even in the garden, amidst the agony of our Lord, we have hope. In the garden of Gethsemane, we are reminded of the first garden, the garden of Eden. In Eden, the first garden, we see the first Adam, who by the tree of knowledge of good and evil, attempted to raise himself up and be equal to God. And by doing so, he disobeyed the will of the Father, which resulted in death. But in the second garden, in Gethsemane, we see the second Adam, who by this time the wood of the cross took the form of a servant and lowered himself. And by doing so, he obeyed the will of the Father, which resulted in life. Thus, as Christ sanctified himself by setting himself apart through the agony of the drinking of the cup of sin, so too must we sanctify ourselves by accepting our trials and tribulations, but us with the joyful knowledge that he has already conquered it for us. So now, friends, we conclude with this. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. My friends, Christ gave us the truth through his ministry, and this is nowhere more evident than on Holy Thursday tonight. He sanctified himself. He set himself apart, anointed himself for the purpose, for the mission of, the, of our redemption and salvation. On this day, our Lord sanctified himself for our sakes by offering his body and blood on the Eucharist table, by washing the feet of the disciples, by giving us the new commandment, and by drinking the cup of sin and agony in the garden. And now it's our turn. We too must say as our Lord said, I too, Lord, will sanctify myself for their sakes, for my family, for my friends, for my church, and even for those who hate me and hurt me, I will sanctify myself by partaking in the Holy Eucharist, by partaking in confession and repentance, by loving everyone, and by bearing my burden with peace and joy, remembering that he already bore it in anguish so that I wouldn't have to. In this way, we will follow your example, O Lord. We will sanctify ourselves, so that those around us who you put in our lives might also be sanctified by the truth 
the truth which is you. I pray that we not only carry Christ's message of sanctification with us tonight as we prepare for the ultimate sacrifice on the cross tomorrow, and not only throughout the remainder of the Holy Beskah and the glorious feast of the Holy Resurrection, but instead I pray that we carry his message with us the rest of our days. Glory be to God.